It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I'm excited to have Deatra Simpson with me. Hi, Deatra. How are you? Hi, Jill. I'm well. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you. Let me tell people just a little bit about you. Deatra is a woman who believes that a personal relationship with God makes all things possible in our lives, including sustainable healing. Deatra is a wife and mother with a blended family of five children. She is a change agent and a rising influential leader in facilitating transformational healing processes and experiences. It all started when she hit her own rock bottom and began to question her beliefs about healing being possible. She created and took herself through a four-part rigorous healing boot camp while counseling families and writing her book, Chains Are Meant to Be Broken. Each step of the way, her faith in God for healing was refined and strengthened. On her healing journey, she learned how to turn her fears into faith, hopelessness into hope, and pain into powerful purpose. Deatra believes that your freedom from past traumatic experiences, unresolved emotional pain, and associated fears is her purpose. So thank you for sending me that information. That was a lot of information. Oh, was it? (laughs) no lots of questions lots of questions tell me something about yourself that wasn't in the bio so I currently am a licensed marriage and family therapist and I lead a family therapy program uh, which is a intensive outpatient uh, family treatment program uh, and is also evidence-based in short term Um, A little bit about myself, though, like how did I come to being this person? I like to say that I got my first client when I was five years old and that client was (laughs) my mom. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened was one day she came into the house and she was like highly emotional. She was aggravated and she needed somebody to talk to. And at five years old, I was the person that she spoke to. And of course, in five-year-old terms, I was like, it was a million minutes. Like, it never ended. But um, I did learn that there was a a gift in being able to listen to someone uh, because my mom did thank me at the end for listening to her. Cool, cool. And you have five kids, huh? Yes, we have five kids. We are a beautiful, blended family. How old are your kids? 21. Uh-huh. 20 and she will be 21 in a few months in September. Uh, we have another 20 year old, a 17 year old and a 14 year old. Oh, wow. That's great. We had four teenagers all at once and that's uh, crazy, crazy stuff, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Scary stuff. Like one of our daughters just got into a car accident and they had to oh, use no. the jaws of life to pull her out of the vehicle. So, But she's okay. She is. Thank God. Wow. Yep. There's lots of lots of uh, transitions and stuff happening. We have four kids and um, two of them are getting married this summer. And it's just it's just nuts. It's absolutely crazy, Deatra. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about what your um, childhood was like. Hmm. So as I've stated, my mom was my first client when I was five years old. My dad mm-hmm. also went to prison when I was five years old. And that was the first chain that was formed in my life um, where I believed that because my dad wouldn't stay, that I was unlovable and um, that all men leave. Mm. And so from there, I became very isolated within myself. I was like what you would call like a mute kid. You know, I you would forget that I was there. I was so quiet. Um, the other thing about me, though, is that I loved getting my hair combed. So I would spend hours at a time combing my hair. I loved dresses. So I would wear like the same dress over and over again because (laughs) we grew up really poor. And I just was like, so what? I don't care. Um, My sister and I, she's 14 months older than me. uh, We would spend a lot of time at home alone. So at six, seven, eight years old, we would be at home by ourselves. And I think like that was the first time in my life where I was equipped with the skills around understanding what I had power over and what I didn't from my young mind. And what I mean by that is like, I didn't have power over my parents being at home, but I did have power over what I did with my time. And so, although I didn't have any dancing training, I literally taught myself how to dance (laughs) and I would choreograph dances, teach them to my friends. And then we would perform the dance in our community. Oh, cool. uh, so yeah, so at a very young age, I was influencing others and leading others. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, at 14 years old, I uh, had two significant things happen in my life. Uh, the first was that I started my own business. I did that on accident. I was totally just trying to do my friend's hair because it was always a mess. And I literally got so many clients off braiding her hair. And the second significant thing that happened was that I sent my stepfather to prison. And so Mm -hmm. my whole life had changed. Why did you send him to prison? Because he was a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a pedophile. Yeah. Um, And so I grew up around a lot of violence and a lot of alcoholism. My mother was violent. And, um, and so she had a lot of physical altercations in our home and, um, you know, he wanted me to be his wife. I had a five-year-old sister, uh, you know, 15-year-old sister and, um, an older brother. And, you know, he found a way to get my brother out of the home. And so the girls were, um, were left there. And so I had ended up running away from home and, um, by the grace of God, an uncle reached out to me just out the blue and asked me about what was going on with my stepdad. And I know that that was just an act of God because there is no way, like, where did he even get that information from? And so he was like, either you're going to go to the police or we're going to do something. And so I went to the police and, uh, you know, he confessed. And uh, so that's how that went. How long was your dad in prison? My dad was in prison from the time that I was five till I was 14. And he did had he been become part mm-hmm. of your life then when he got out? 
He did. So I had um, lived a short time with him. He's still actively a part of my life today. He hasn't been to prison in, you know, over 15 years, 20 years. So, um, yeah, that that changed. Yeah. And so your stepdad, is he still in prison? He is no longer my stepdad. (laughs) Um, Okay, And he is no longer in prison. Okay. Okay. What do you, um, I mean, you're talking about feeling, uh, feeling abandoned. You're talking about feeling lonely, um, the violence in the house, the chaos. What do you do as a child with all of those emotions? Did you channel that into your dancing and creativity? What do you do with all that? Um, I did a couple of things. One of the things I did was I created this fantasy world inside of myself, like this safe place that I can go mm-hmm. and be in where I got all of my needs met. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that caused me really to go inward and to shut myself off from the world in a lot of ways. Um, I also was a part of the usher board at my church that my grandmother went to and she would take us and I joined the um the competition team. And so we would compete against other churches. That was something else I did. Definitely dance. Like I would dance like there was nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Um, just, and that's where I learned how to really like express my feelings. So maybe I didn't talk, but if you put a song on, you're going to know everything that I was feeling. Um, I would read, um, you know, at four years old, I read a book called Battered Women. So I was mm-hmm. reading about, um, women being in violent relationships. Um, what else did I did? I spent a lot of time with my older sister. We were really close though, mm-hmm. even though I was really quiet. Uh, and I spent a lot of time learning how to do my hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was able to, to like busy myself. And I really felt like that's just the way life was. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think that there was anything wrong with the way that I was living because even when we would go to like my mother's friend's house and things like that, there would be violence there too. Yeah. So that was just the way the world worked. Yeah. Yeah. So as a young adult, you kind of turned to partying some. Yeah. So uh, at 20, I got married. Okay. To uh, the father of my child. I gave birth to one and it became violent the same day that we said I do. So I stayed in that marriage for a few years. And when I left that marriage, I was a completely different person. Like I was the, the prey who had became the predator. Like if Mm. I believed in God or had faith in God, it was gone. I was so angry with God, even though I grew up with it. I was a person that never wanted to be hit. That's why I was quiet. That was a way in which I protected myself by being silent. And the fact that I was in this abusive relationship, it just turned my life upside down. And so I absolutely, you know, began to do harder drugs. So I was drinking and smoking weed and doing coke and running the streets. And and, and I was really living a double life. I was doing all of that while enrolled in college, getting straight A's. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. 
So you hit a rock bottom at, at some point and you mentioned that in your, in your bio, what was your rock bottom? So I have two significant rock bottoms. The first was in 2014. And that's when I actually went into my second rehab. There was a woman in the other room that was just crying her eyes out. Like she was crying, like the vibration of her pain was just riddling through the walls. And I heard God say to me that I could help her. And like Mm -hmm. instantly I just dropped to my knees and I said, God, how can I be of service to you? Because I know that you're going to take care of me. And that was the first sense of rock bottom because I was willing to, to compromise everything that I had built for my life. And I'm like, I guess I'm just going to have a car and live up under the bridge because there, I could no longer live that double life anymore. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Using the drugs and alcohol had really taken a toll on me. Um, So that rock bottom really was about like getting clean and sober and trusting God to be, um, to feel that God size hole inside of me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the second rock bottom was in 2017. Um, I was in a great deal of emotional pain around my marriage and my family. And it was coming in, we were celebrating New Year's and the whole house was empty. And I was like, God, I can't take this anymore. And if you don't step in, the only thing I know how to do is to go get a drink. And I remember I was in a bathroom. I was just waiting for God to give me some type of sign, some type of answer. And I didn't get it at that point. So I got my keys, got my purse, went to the store in a matter of three minutes. I had a bottle of Hennessy and a handful of weed. And I took it home and I broke it open and poured me a triple shot. And I'm like, I guess this is the end. Mm. Um, But then Holy Spirit came in in that moment. And I had remembered that I was invited to be a secretary at a women's rehab facility. And that if I took that drink, that I wouldn't be able to go and be of service to those women. And the other thing was that I opened that bottle of Hennessy and never smelled its scent. Mm. And so I poured it out. And so that rock bottom for me, uh, 30 days later, my husband walked out with his kids. My daughter ran away from home and I was at home by myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, And that's when I looked up and I looked to God and I'm like, whatever is going on on the inside of me, because I knew that I could be successful in external things. I knew that I could be successful in pleasing other people or pretending I was pleasing them, whatever, you know, I thought I was doing to mask what was going on on the inside of me. And when that house um, was just left with me and all of my pain and all of my fears and, and all of the trauma that had plagued my life it was time to do something different. And so what Mm -hmm. did you do different? So when the first year I wanted to die every day, so I woke up crying. I went to bed crying, right? Like I I just wanted to die. But in those uh, moments of immense pain, I would seek comfort from God rather than comfort from external things. You know, I would call Holy Spirit to come into that place in my heart and to take up residence and to give me his peace that surpasses all a man's understanding. And it would be like, suddenly I would be okay. I also had insomnia during that time. Uh, So that's where writing the book came in. 
Okay. And that's where I really got really acquainted with with my own beliefs and with my own pain and my own fears and, and, and the experiences that brought me to those places of pain and fear. Your book is called Chains Are Meant to Be Broken, and you talk about the seven seven links to break the cycle of learning to accept yourself. Can you describe a few of those? So um, the seven links are really around how to break away from beliefs, right, Mm -hmm. that keep us in bondage to our our trauma, to our pain, and to our fears. And so um, the first two links is, is the event. And then the pain or the experience that comes from the event. Now, those two particular links can't be broken, but they can be transformed. And um, and so then after that comes self-pity, which is a false sense of comfort that we use that takes the place of the real comforter, which is Holy Spirit. And from self-pity comes fear. And fear, um, the way that, I've um, researched and the understanding that Holy Spirit gave to me is that that becomes like the strongest anchor and vice for us because it gets our attention so quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the brain, right? Because a part of the brain's functionality is to protect us. And so fear is a great way to protect us. And so come from fear is anger, unwillingness, and resentment. And so I talk about how those are integrated into our belief system. And when it's integrated into our belief system, it keeps us trapped in the pain and it keeps Mm -hmm. us trapped in the fears that's associated with that pain, which is I don't ever want to feel that again. So what can I do to protect myself? So I start talking about self-made protection or we might talk about that as like defense mechanisms, but how, you know, we shift into a place of doing all of this work to protect ourselves when we have a protector that will enable us to have an open heart and an open spirit while also experiencing safety. So those are the things, some of the things that I talk about in my book. So you're talking about beliefs like um, all men will leave or I will always be alone or nobody cares about me. You're talking about those internal tapes that we play that are, that are negative and damaging, right? So uh, the the internal tapes would be the thoughts, the emotions, and the reactions that show up in our body, but we may not be able to connect it to what the actual belief is. So I try to talk about my own beliefs to put them on the table for people to begin to explore and put words to their beliefs um, so that it uh, moves from the subconscious to the conscious or the present mind. And then when it moves to the present mind, then I can make some choices around that as long as it's in my subconscious mind is influencing and dictating and determining like my attitude and my behaviors and how I'm interacting in the world and how I perceive the world and so um so we don't always necessarily know what the the hidden driven force is and so my book the way that I wrote it is to um encourage the reader to explore the hidden forces that's driving their behaviors and their attitudes and their emotions and, you know, body reactions. Okay. Interesting. So um, I'm curious as a marriage and family therapist, uh, what are some of the most common problems you find in family relationships? Common problems are seeking first to be understood rather than to understand. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, that's a key one. Um, the love being hidden. So when I go in, I'm looking for love. I'm looking for the evidence of love so that I can magnify that and illuminate that for that family to attract them to it. And what I find is that their love is not transparent to the other where the other is able to understand it as love being given to them. Or when there's pain, people reject love, right? And so you need love, but you're rejecting it at the same time, which keeps us in that same place of pain or it re-traumatizes us or re-injures us over and over again because we're afraid uh, to be hurt when at the same time, you know, we're... uh, void of experiencing love. Mm. Uh, the other thing that um, I witness in in families is keeping a record of wrong, mm. right? Yeah. A lack of forgiveness, unwillingness to forgive. And again, all of this is stemmed from fear of like not, you know, wanting to be hurt again. So there's a lot of distrust uh, that I see in families. Um, and sometimes, you know, when I talk about trauma, I talk about like the basics, uh, form of trauma, which is not being seen, not being heard and not being understood. And when people experience like that basic level of trauma over and over again, especially within their family system, then all of these other, you know, ripple effects began to take form and shape in their home, um, that takes the place um, that love, uh, could be, yeah. Hmm. That's powerful. That, uh, that seems like sometimes, you know, you hear things, um, about, you know, making your love not transparent and, and, you know, you just think, I think about my own relationship and, and just go, is that, is that operational in my relationship? And it seems like it's common sense, you know, that you need to visibly show your love to, but, but we, we get stuck in our own stuff and, and get lost in that, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I know for me, one of the things that I needed to shift in because my daughter is so much not like me. I can go to school and just make straight A's without trying. I can be high. I can be drunk. That was my experience. She had a really hard time in school, for example. And I remember like it being made clear to me, pray to be the mother that she needs, not the mother that you think you should be, not the mother that you think other people think that you should be, but pray to be the mother that she needs. Yeah. And that, you know, that opened me up to explore and to see her um, from where she really was, you know, versus, yeah. That, that goes back to seeking to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in your work as a marriage and family therapist, are you in a organization where you're able to bring in spirituality as a part of healing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have brought in spirituality as a part of healing spirituality, not just for our clients, but for those who provide services to our clients and to those who lead those who provide services to our clients. I know that when I stepped into this work that I was stepping out on faith, I had left my corporate job. I had lived a whole different type of lifestyle. And I was like, God, honor my faith. You know, this is the work that you've called me to do. So when I came in, I was very God led and very outspoken about that, not necessarily to, 
you know, make others feel uncomfortable, but I would share my experience. And so like, even in our office, it's like faith over fear, you know, we're talking to our staff about their, about their faith and what does faith mean to them and, and things like that. And I remember um, before um, being in a leadership position, the person who I took her position, she said, you know, Deatra, I'm an atheist. She said, but I believe in your God. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. You um, you said something in our um, initial interview that I loved, and you talked about um, the fact that anybody can believe. And you reached a point where you're saying, Lord, help help my unbelief. What was that point in your life when you said that? So that was tied to this belief that all men leave. Now, imagine I adopted that belief when I was five or six years old. Mm -hmm. And I meet the man of my dreams at 30 something. He sweeps me off my feet. You know, the same year he proposes to me seven months later, we get married and I'm doing everything within my power to tear that man apart and to tear that home apart. And I remember walking out of our room door and I prayed a prayer. I said, God, I want to come out. Mm. I want to come out of this hiding. I can't be here anymore, you know, because I had come into collision with a love that I knew was of God and that I wanted to experience that love because the way that I met my husband, I had prayed a prayer. I said, God, I want to experience your love of me through a man. Mm. And he had given that to me and I was doing everything within my power to tear that down. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. And that's, you know, at the time that I prayed that, you know, my husband hadn't left me yet. (laughs) You know, I hadn't gotten sober yet. I think I was high when I prayed the prayer, but I remember specifically where I was and everything. And, um, And I was like, help my unbelief. So during this time of healing and working with families and helping families to heal in their systems, I really began to pray, help my unbelief. I believe you, God. I know that it's possible. I see the evidence in in other people's families. I see the evidence in my family. My mom, no matter how abusive and everything that we grew up in, all of my mother's children are married in healthy, loving relationships. Wow. All of us. So I knew that it was possible and I had to do work to, to, to counter the belief. So the belief that I had lived by was all men leave. So I began to write up just a basic list. Well, what man didn't leave me? Well, my brother never left me. My dad told me he may have went to prison, but he never left me. My husband didn't leave me, you know, during that time. I have male friends that didn't leave me. And so I began to collect the evidence that said that that belief was a lie, which then positioned me to be able to say, well, well, what then is the truth? Well, some men leave, Mm -hmm. but not all. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so your relationship now with your husband has been healed yeah. And uh, your family is together. We are so, together. Well, that's a miracle. Praise the Lord. And you've been, you've been sober for how long? I'm going on seven years. 
That's mm-hmm. amazing. Congratulations. Thank so you. one, one last question. Um, what do you most want people to learn from your life and, and what you've been, what you've been doing? Uh, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. So the book is chains are meant to be broken. And where can people find that? They can find that on my website at DLS inspirations with the S at the end.com. And I, I have uh, the book chains are meant to be broken as well as a companion workbook. That's okay. Available. Great. Well, we'll put that link in our show notes and thank you so much for, um, for gracing me with your time and your presence and, and your words. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Jill. It's been a privilege and an honor for me for sure. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the post-traumatic faith podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google podcast today. You can follow Jill on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.Author, and on Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. Email Jill at JillRiley.org.